as we as we look at Hebrews four, we've been we did the first part before we broke for Christmas. Hebrews four one through thirteen is all about rest. But just as a quick reminder, the writer to Hebrews is addressing three audiences. He's addressing a group of Hebrew people, Jewish people, who were in and around the Rome or the Italy area, and these people had been influenced by disciples of the apostles. Maybe an apostle himself went up there, but they had bought into the gospel and they had left Judaism and were following Jesus. That's the first group. The second group is a group of people that intellectually bought into the concept of going away from Judaism. And they recognized that Jesus was making this claim of being Messiah. And they might even have confessed that they believe He's Messiah. But there was no evidence in their life. It was merely a lip confession and no Holy Spirit transaction took place in their heart. That's the second group. The third group is people that are still trying to figure out. They don't know what to believe. They're seeing these people who are acting different, who've left their Judaism and, and all the, the stuff associated with it. And, and yet, they don't know if they want to buy into it or not. So they're trying to discern. So three groups of people, and there's five warnings starting in chapter 2. We, we covered that back at chapter 2 that deal with this whole issue of the people that had intellectually bought in. They had left Judaism, but they had not turned to Jesus. And so, in chapter 1, the writer starts off by saying that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He is supreme to everything. He's supreme to angels, and he covers that in chapter 1. He's supreme to Moses. He's supreme to Aaron as a priest. He's supreme to the sacrificial system. He's supreme to the temple. He's supreme to everything that they would have held up spiritually as being high value. He was supreme to all of it. That's what the writer's saying to him. It's really the theme of the whole book, that Christ is supreme. And so in, as he goes into the warning in chapter 2, he warns them. He says, be careful because you are drifting and you may actually drift away. Now, they were not drifting from belief to unbelief. They were drifting from being exposed to the gospel. And when he says you've tasted of it, he meant that you've been exposed in a way that you're, it, it makes sense to you, but yet you haven't really allowed Jesus to come in and change your heart. And so you better be careful because you're drifting. And we talked about spiritual drift. It can happen even if you're a believer. But for these people, it could have been eternally fateful because what they were doing is they had been exposed to a message that could save their life forever, but they were going away from it. And he says, you better pay attention because you're drifting and you're going to drift to a point where you just go away and you never come back. It's not talking about people losing their salvation there. It's talking about people that have been exposed to a gospel message, that understand that message in an intellectual way, but their hearts say, you know what, I'm not in. There's a lot of that in our country. A lot of that. People would say to you even that they're in. Those are the people that Matthew 7 addressed when Jesus says, many of you are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, depart, for I never knew you. Because they have intellectually bought in, but their hearts were never there. And that's what he said. I never knew you. There was no union. You can't be a believer if there's no union with Christ. And if there's a union with Christ, it can never be separated. 
And, and so what he does is he warns them in chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, he starts off by saying that, again, Jesus is greater than Moses. You guys held up Moses. You think the law is where it's at. Jesus is greater. Moses was a prophet. Jesus was a greater prophet. Moses was an apostle. Jesus was a greater an apostle. You know, everything that, that Moses was faithful, but he was still flawed. Jesus was faithful and not flawed. There was no flaw there. And so he goes into the end of chapter 3 and he starts talking about this warning from Psalm 95 that David warned people about that was really a warning back from Numbers that says, today if you hear this voice, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Instead, let your heart be soft. Grab onto it. And, and we, remember we talked about how the absolute authority of God's Word is, is there in that? I mean, that, that 400 years after it happened in Numbers, David's quoting it in the uh, Psalms. A thousand years after David writes it, it's being quoted to the Hebrew people over in Hebrews, in this letter to the Hebrews. And even today, 2,000 years later, it's still applicable. Now, I want, to, I want you to think about one of the most influential men who's been a writer in our lifetime. I don't even know who that would be, to be honest with you. Somebody who's been a very influential writer from a spiritual... Yes, C.S. Lewis. I don't know that they're going to be reading C.S. Lewis quotes 1,500 years from now. I just don't think they will. But we're doing this. Why? Because it's God's Word. It wasn't David's Word. It wasn't Moses' Word. It was God's Word through these men. That's why it still has relevance to us. That's why we're still talking about it. And the warning is still there. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. And, and so, then last time we met, when we went through Hebrews, we went through the first 13 verses of 14, or verse 4, I mean chapter 4. And in that, we looked at His rest. Remember that word rest was over and over and over. It was just stated in that, those 13 verses. And we, we saw that God's rest is and has always been conditional on one thing, belief and faith. Not confession, belief and faith. All the way back to the garden. Remember we saw that? That was the second uh, principle we brought out was that His rest is and has always been His plan. He wanted us to have rest. So when He put Adam and Eve in the garden, remember? He gave them one, one thing not to do. Only one. We have lots today that we've got to think about. They had one. I mean, I want you to think about this for a second. Adam didn't have to worry about committing adultery. He had nobody else. Adam didn't have to worry about pornography. He didn't have computers or, or print. He didn't have other women. He had his own wife right there naked all the time. He had, oh, he had one thing not to do. Don't eat the tree. And you know why God gave him that one thing? To show that Adam was man and God was God. You see, by Adam having to obey his Creator, he was being underneath the Creator. It's the thing that we've struggled with since then. Every man in this room struggles with this. When God wants us to do something, but we want to do something else, either out of fear or out of personal pleasure, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. 
when God says, this is the design that I have, and said, Adam, you got one thing for rest. And he says, Satan comes along and says, you know what? If you eat from that tree, you're going to be just like God. And that was the problem. And so God intended that from the beginning. And so we saw at the end, the way you achieve that rest, our rest really is to believe in Him, to trust in Him. Doesn't mean your life will be free from problems, but it means that you can rest in the midst of the problems. Right, Gil? Doesn't mean you doesn't mean you like what's going on in your life right now. But it means that you can rest in the midst of it. And so we saw that the last thing it said at the end of 13 is that or, or four at the end there is he said, talked about the word of God being sharp. And then he talked about us being exposed. Remember that term uh, I read at the end and it says, no creatures hidden, but all are naked and exposed. That word exposed means to, uh, like a wrestling term for an opponent to take his uh, opponent by the neck. And he's right up there face to face with him. And that's what we're standing like in front of God. What does it say later in Hebrews? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. You see, you can fall in the hands of an idol all day long. It ain't going to matter. Idols are nothing. They're powerless. But the living God, His hands are terrifying to you if you are not in relationship with Him. Absolutely terrifying. But you know what Jesus did? He transformed a terrifying thought to a terrific thought. Comforting and terrific. I mean, it is. It, it's amazing. That now, like Jesus, when He was on the cross, He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why? Because He was in right relationship with the Father, right? And when we're in the right relationship with the Father, the hands of God are not looking to pound you down. Those hands are looking to help you up. And that's what the text today is all about, guys. 14, 15, and 16 are basically showing us the positive aspects of what it means to really know and trust Jesus. When you think about Jesus in your life, how impactful is He on a day-to-day basis? How practical is He in your life when you really think about Him? You know, this, this passage today was so encouraging as I, was, as I was working through it. When I was thinking about him being a great high priest, I want you to imagine for a second, for a second, somebody walking around with you everywhere you go. Amos, you're working on a house, you bang your finger and an expletive comes out of your mouth. Of course. Right? Not because you intentionally go do it, but you just smashed your finger and it came out. Immediately the Holy Spirit convicts you and you go, I shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> Jesus is right there talking to the Father, saying, Father, you know He's mine. You know He loves you. You know He didn't mean to do that. Please be merciful to them. And God says, okay. Thank you. Have you ever thought about that? That is so amazing that everywhere we go, whenever we're going through our day, that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what this text is about. Guys, I'm going to tell you, if that doesn't make you want to shout, nothing will. Because I blow it so often in my life, 
And to know that the heavenly Father is, is listening to the Son on my behalf every time I blow it. That's, that's comforting to me. And so we're going to read this text and really it, the, the text has two main ideas. The first one is this. Because of Jesus, God calls us to one, hold fast our confession. You know what that means to hold fast your confession? That just means to don't let it get away from you. You hold on to this. You're not just saying it with your mouth. You're saying, I'm in. I'm all in. Somebody, I forgot who it was uh, at the, the widow's thing, came up to me and said, I'm all in. They were sweat pouring down off of them, grass and stuff all over them, and they just said, I'm all in. I said, I see it, brother. I see it. And this is what he's saying is, you hold fast your confession to Christ. You be all in. And the second idea is that is down in verse 16. He says to draw near to His throne with confidence. Don't be afraid to talk to God. Don't be afraid to go to Him. When you blow it, when you mess up, that's exactly the time to go to Him and to say, Thank you, Father. I'm so sorry for messing up. I did it again. Please, please, Father, I'm so sorry. You own your sin. You own your flaws. And you let His mercy rain down on you. That, yeah, that, that is so encouraging. So let's read these three short verses. And then I, I really want to unpack it just a little bit in the next 20 minutes. Okay? So starting in verse 14... Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May God bless His Word. You know, when we think about our confession, first of all, our confession should not be a private thing for us. Our confession was never meant to be private. It was always meant to be public. God's people were meant to put Him on display to the world so that the world may know. That phrase is in the Bible so many times. That the world may know that there is a living God. That there is a real God. That there is a true God. And so, so in our culture, we have been basically beat down to say, you know what? Faith is a very private thing. It was never meant to be private. If anybody, if a believer tells you that, say, please show me in Scripture where that is. Because they won't find it. You can counter them and say, faith is very personal, but it was never meant to be private. It was personal in that you are dealing with God individually, but it is meant to be put on display. He says, hold fast this confession. And it's not just an intellectual assent. It's this idea that, you know what? We are all in with Jesus. And we don't care who knows. Uh, Brad and I were talking, uh, no, it was yesterday. Uh, David Gray and I were talking about an article that was on the... uh, 
uh, oh, what's that? It's a news wire thing. I'm trying to think. The Huffington Post. The Huffington Post. Not something I spent a lot of time reading, just to be honest with you. Uh, but a lot of people do read it. They do. And so there was a very influential Canadian blogger and writer, young lady who's, I don't know, late 30s now, who came out and said, I have changed my position on the LGBTQ and I've realized that the, what I believe was harmful. And, and she went through this whole article. Basically, the reason she shifted was because of the Pulse shooting down in Orlando. And she realized that those people are bullied. So now because they're bullied, she is not going to speak out against them. and for, She's going to affirm them in what they do in their lifestyle. And yet she says, but I haven't given up my faith. I'm still a Christian. But I realized that for many, many years as a Christian, I took the wrong position. Now listen, it's wrong for anybody to bully somebody else. It's wrong for people to go in and needlessly take a life without, you know, defending. Like the guy in Texas who took the life of that shooter out there, he was defending life. That's not wrong. But it is wrong to go kill somebody even if they're sinning. I mean, it's wrong for people to do that. And we should, we should you know what, we should, uh, we should intervene. We should, we, we should be just as willing to stick up against bullying. That's wrong. But it doesn't mean we compromise our beliefs and we compromise the Scripture and we compromise truth and we affirm a lifestyle. No, I'm not going to do that. You shouldn't do that. Because Scripture doesn't do that. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever find any justification for deviation from God's design in the sexual, um, the sexual way God designed for man and woman to procreate and have a family. It was the base unit of God's faith community. And anything other than that is, is an aberration. And you know, they can bring all their nice nifty little arguments, but one day they're going to stand before the Creator and, and so I'm going to tell you, whether it's relating to the LGBTQ or maybe some guy's coming up to you, uh, Derek, and he says, uh, what about the natives in Africa? If God's loving, why does He allow those little kids to be killed and put in sexual slavery over there? If He's so loving. And, and, and you start to you go, I don't know. I can't answer that. I don't know those things. But you feel like you've got to defend God and so you keep going, can I just tell you something? They can do all their little mental gymnastics and all that stuff they want to do. Right. It ain't going to fly with God. Right. And, and, and I would encourage you not to try to get into a huge debate unless you're prepared to do that. A better response is to say, you know what? There's a lot of things that I can't answer, but what I do know is what He's done in my life. And I know that I can trust Him and my faith is in Him. It's always going to be Him and I'm going to pray for you. That's, that's really all you need to do. Don't feel like you have to defend God. He can defend Himself. You just tell what He's done in your life. Because there's nobody can sit here and can tell me that He's not real. And they can tell me I'm crazy. I don't care. I've seen what He's done. I've walked with Him. And, and, and so... He's saying, hold fast this confession. Let it be public. He says, and the reason we hold fast, first of all, is because we have a high priest. 
Not just a priest, a high priest. And you know how we know he's high? Because when he did his priestly duties, he sat down. In John 17, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1 says, He sat down. Do you know how many priests in the history of Israel sat down in the Holy of Holies? You got that right. You know why? They were scared. They were afraid that they would die. They didn't even stay in there that long, man. They, 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 they threw a little bit of blood on the altar and they got out of town, man. They're like, okay, let, it, let them be forgiven. Did their thing and they were out. Because they were fearful. They were that fearful of the holiness of God. People, see, here's the problem. Most people don't think that God is that holy. And most people don't think that they're that bad. Including us sometimes. We forget how holy God is. We forget how bad we are. Because, can I ask you a question? Is, is there a small sin to God? No. Sin is sin to Him, right? Think about what Adam did. He ate fruit from a tree. Can it get any smaller than that? I mean, come on, Really? I used to steal apples from my neighbor's tree. They didn't want me to, and I'd go over and get those crab apples because they were good when they came off. That's not that big a deal. And look at the terrible consequences that have been strewn out over centuries and millennia because of that small sin. And yet we trivialize because we look at sin and we say, oh, that's not that bad. You know, that's not that terrible. But no, we we have forgotten how holy God is and we've forgotten what one little sin is to a holy God. And so, in some essence, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, had it right. That means people go, well, that's crazy. You know, we don't have to fear God. We know we don't because of Jesus. But maybe we should have a little healthier view of God's holiness in our life. But Jesus is a great high priest. And you know what a high priest does? What the priest does? His role is to be a bridge between unholy man and holy God. And that's exactly what he's done. And he finished the work. And notice it says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Jesus wasn't just a human priest. He was the Son of God. And when He came, the priesthood ended. The Judaistic system ended. There was no place for a priest anymore. Man didn't need a priest. We go directly to God. We don't need an intermediary. And that's what it says there. But notice it says, He's passed through the heavens. The Son of God. He's not just a great high priest. He's a divine high priest. In chapter 9, verse 24, it says that He operates in a temple not made with human hands. It's God's temple. You know where Paul talks about over in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12? He was in the third heaven. You notice it says he passed through the heavens. Just like the priest used to have to pass through a court, and then an inner court, and then the Holy of Holies, Jesus passed right out from... Really, that's talking about the ascension. He he passed through the atmosphere... Because it says, what did He do? He ascended, right? Through the atmosphere, 
Then the, the galactic stellar world up there, the cosmic sphere, into the presence of God. He was a divine priest. Here's the crazy thing. The, high, the human priest, only once a year, one time a year, the high priest got to go in to be in the presence of God. And it was quite a production. Listen to this. On Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, the high priest would represent all the people and he would go into the Holy of Holies where he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat was behind the veil, the curtain, the temple veil. Nobody could see it. Think about that. We couldn't even see the mercy seat if we lived back then. And he did that to symbolize the atonement of the sins of the people. But before he even did that, you know what he had to do? He had to offer his own sacrifice for his own sin. And then when he went in there, like I said earlier, he only stayed long enough to sprinkle the blood on. And then he got out or he risked death. Bells, like Greg said, were tied to him. And he would be jingling as he goes in because if the bells stopped jingling, they had a rope and they would pull him body out because ain't nobody else going in there to get him. And when he went in, like I said, he had to go through the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. So when you think about Jesus being a high priest, a divine priest, I think some of us may have thought about that, but do you really think about him being a sympathetic priest? He was also a sympathetic priest. I think sometimes we forget that, that he understands how we feel. And you know why? Because I've had people tell me when I try to give them Scripture or I try to encourage them with Scripture and talk to them, they go, it's easy for you. You don't understand how I feel. Because that's our, that's our normal... Guys, can I just say we're all humanistic? We all are. Really? What do you mean? Yeah, we all are humanistic. I mean that we love people that love us and we hate people that hate us. We're motivated by our own human nature. And, and so we operate naturally in a humanistic mode. So when somebody tries to tell me that God's in control, He's sovereign, when my life's falling apart, I don't want to hear it. So the human side of me says, you don't really know what I'm feeling. But God does know. Jesus understands the temptation. He understands the pain of the struggle. And do you, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Let's say you've struggled with a sin, a particular area of weakness. Do you know when you're going through that struggle and you're battling to try not to give in to it, and then you finally succumb and you give in to it, you feel this sense of relief even though it's short-lived, even though you feel conviction after, you feel an initial sense of relief because you're not in a battle anymore. If you tell me you don't feel that, you're lying because everybody feels relief when you're out of that battle. Even though it's short, Jesus never felt that. He never felt the relief because He never gave in to sin. He was tempted in every way, but He never gave in he was tempted to drops of blood. When he was in the garden and he was sweating drops of blood, 
It was because he did not want God to turn his face away from him. And he said, oh Lord, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And you know, I learned something a a year ago when I went to Israel with a guy that went with us who shared about that passage. And I'd never heard that before. And it was very encouraging to me that it's not sinful to struggle with with not wanting to do something God wants you to do. And I, I, I never thought about that. It, it's not sinful to struggle with not wanting to do something that God wants you to do. Because otherwise, Jesus would have sinned in the garden. Because Jesus, He said, Father, take this from me. Is that showing a little bit of doubt? No, it's not doubt. It's just saying, this is going to be painful. I don't, want, I don't want to experience this. Is there another way? I don't want to dishonor you, but I don't want to do it like this. Is there another way we can do it? That's not sin. The sin is not doing what He's asked you to do. That's just an admission of His humanity. Exactly. But what I'm saying is, we, some of us have been taught by people that are well-meaning that you just got, you know what? You should enjoy doing everything God wants you to do. Once you start doing it, you will. Maybe. I don't think Paul liked getting whipped on the back. I don't think he liked getting beat. But that's where God had him. But you know, this is also the same Paul that got let down in a basket. So one moment, God's letting him down in a basket to protect him. The next minute, he's getting beaten and stoned. And what I'm saying to you is, you see this progression in Paul where when he's in prison after he'd been beaten, he was singing praises to God. Would we do that? You know, when you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, you're probably not going to want to break into a praise song right then. But the hope is, is that shortly after that, or as you work through it with God's strength, you will be able to say, though He slay me like Job, still I praise Him. And and, and (laughs) when you haven't dealt with it, you're dealing with it. Jim's dealing with it. I'm not dealing with pancreatic cancer. And I I think a lot of times what happens is people say, well, you just got to, you know, you just got to have a positive attitude. And I'm saying that, that it's okay because when we fail to do that, this is what's so important about having a sympathetic priest. He knows exactly what you struggle with. Do you think the disciples for one moment got what he was experiencing the night when he was in the garden? No, because they were asleep. He sympathizes and empathizes. And so here's the thing. That takes us right in to the next part because it says, it says down in 14 or 15, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We go with a boldness. And notice it says a throne of grace. Do you know if you look in Ezekiel and go back and look in Isaiah and you look in a lot of the Old Testament prophets, when you see a throne mentioned related to God, is it a throne of wrath or a throne of grace? What? It's wrath most of the time. It's judgment. But look what Jesus has done. He has transformed 
the throne from wrath to grace for God's children. He has taken this. And, and so the issue is, guys, are we needy? Because that seems to be the area that he addresses. He says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We always need him. Well, we should always need him. But see, we like to depend on our own strength because we're humanists. We like to depend on our own wisdom. We like to depend on our own abilities and power. And this is why, guys, guys, God constantly puts us in positions in trials where we have to look to Him because on our own, none of us are going to go, God, I really need you today. Unless there's a circumstance that drives us to it. Most of us won't do that. Even though we, we know what's happened, we know how powerful the enemy is, we know what he can do, but most of the time when we wake up, unless there's a circumstance driving us there, we barely give God five minutes of our day to really say, I need you. I really need you. But boy, when the chips are falling, the walls are crumbling around you, and you don't want to go on anymore, that's when your heart cries out to Him and says, I need you. I really need you. And that's what He wants. That's, that's really, you know what He wants more than anything is for us to have that faith that we need Him and nothing else. How many times in the Old Testament have we covered in here before where He tells people, don't look to the Egyptians. You know, you're my people. Look to me. Why are you going to go hire the Chaldeans to come in here and fight for you? Trust me. And that's why I love Hezekiah's prayer. When Hezekiah says, you know what? They have this army, but we've got the arm of God. Give me God any day. I don't care what it is. I will take God any day over any army, over any wealthy person, over any ability that anybody on earth has because God is God and they're not. Amen. He's the one living God. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's what the whole point of that passage is. Saul was trusting in his own strength and that's why he was quivering. David goes, what are you guys doing? We got the God of Israel. Why are you quivering here? Let's go out there. This boy was 12 or 13 years old. And he goes out there and slays the giant. That's not about slaying the giants in our life. You know what that's about? That's about having faith in a God who can do anything and trust in Him. That's what it's about. Are we needy? Are we drawing near? You know, I, I, this picture, I, going back to what I shared earlier about having Jesus walk with us everywhere we go, knowing. Do you know that before you even sin? He's sitting there because He's all-knowing. God's all-knowing, all-powerful. He's watching what you're doing. And before you even give in to the temptation, Jesus is sitting there ready to intercede. As soon as it happens, He's interceding with the Father. Father, man, be merciful to Him. Be merciful to Him. And we never have to fear His wrath. As soon as the sin happens, He's interceding. That... That's comforting, isn't it? That's why he's sitting down. He's already accomplished all the work. How many sins, Tim, had you committed when Jesus died on the cross? None. Right? 
So why is it that after we trust Him and we become followers, and He's changed our life, that when we sin, we feel like we can't go to God? Because every sin that we had ever committed happened after His death on the cross. And it says that paid for all the sins of His people. Right? And so, when you sin, He tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He will what? Yeah, He forgives us. They're forgiven by what He did on the cross. We don't have to fear His wrath ever. Will He bring discipline into our life? Yeah, He will. But every sin that you commit, when you blow it, He's right there and He's telling these people, listen, He's interceding for you. Be bold. Go to the throne. You know the difference between mercy and grace? He says right here that we may receive mercy and find grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Amen. That's what that means. Mercy means you're supposed to get this, but you don't because the person is not, they're being merciful to you. They're not giving what you deserve. What do we all deserve? Yeah, we all deserve eternal death. But grace is giving us what we don't deserve. So you see, it's not just that we don't go to hell. We get to be in God's family. We get to be in His army. We get to be in His, his group, His people group. We're His peeps. <laughs> I mean, isn't that great? That's my daughter's term, you know. We're with Him. He claims us. So, and you know when this became, I mean, I, there was a great illustration a few weeks ago. Did I tell you about this guy? Uh, you know, I play video games with my, my son. Both my sons, I play video games with them. And the, the, one of the most popular games right now in the world is a game called Fortnite. Okay? I mean, million, hundreds of millions of people play this all over the world. Hundreds of millions. And so I play with my boys, and so I was playing one night, and my son got off, and I accidentally um, stayed on. And so I look up on the screen, and I'm in the game has started, and the guy that I'm playing with is a guy named Evangelicals. And I hear this voice, Hey, are you there? Hey, are you there in the headset I'm wearing? And I go, Yeah, I'm here. I, I, I'm here. I, I didn't know I was playing. I said, uh, What's Evangelicals? Well, he thought, I meant like, what does that mean? I just meant what was up with the name. So he starts witnessing to me, telling me what evangelicals is. Do you know Jesus? You know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you know, and and evangel is is short for you know, it's good news, and 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 it's really good news to follow Jesus. Do you know him? I mean, he just he's he's seeing me as a witnessing opportunity, and so I tell him. Well, I'm a minister. Oh, really? So we start talking. We could care less about what's going on in the game. We're just talking back and forth. He's 23 years old. His dad was a pastor. At 17 years old, he started into the drug life that went to the deeper drug life, which led to robbery, which led to felony convictions in two states. And he said... His name was Joshua, by the way. Which is Jesus' name. You know that, right? Yeshua. And so he said, Doug, I was, I was 
in a courtroom about to be sentenced, I wanted more than anything in the whole world for somebody to come step up and take my punishment. I wanted that so bad at that moment because I did not want to go to jail. I was scared to go to jail. I did not want to be separated from my family. I did not want to be separated from those that are around me. And I wanted somebody to come up and take my punishment. And there was nobody to do it. And I'm just looking up at the judge awaiting to get sentenced. And, and all those messages my dad had shared about Jesus stepping in and saying, I'll take it. I'll take it. And, and the light bulb went off for me. And he said, I get sentenced, I go to jail. Second day in the jail, a chaplain comes by. And he goes, and I trust Christ. And my life has changed. And that, that was six years ago. Well, it wasn't six years ago he got sentenced, but he started that process of going away. But he grew up in the church. He confessed Jesus. He, you, people would have said he's a Christian, but he's just acting out. Oh, he prayed a prayer. His dad was a preacher. Of course he's a believer. He's just acting out. And he says, I was not. I was not. That's the second group. And, and what made the difference from him was realizing, and the writer to Hebrews is trying to do the same thing that his dad did with people, is say, there's somebody that's going to take your punishment, and he's interceding at the right hand of the Father right now. Trust him. Hold on to your confession. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Let Jesus be your mediator. That's what he's saying. Are we holding fast? Am I resting or trusting in him as my priest? Do I really believe he's that holy and that I'm that needy? See, only Jesus can be our mediator. And so, as you think about this text today, specifically, what is God saying to me? What is he saying to me? When I walk out that door, how is him being my priest going to change my life in Jacksonville, Florida in 2020? January 15th, 2020. 14th. What is 14th, 15th? 15th? How's he going to change my life on January 15th, 2020? Because if it doesn't change your life, it means nothing. He's about changing your life. He's conforming you to the image of His Son. But don't miss out. No matter what you do as His child, nothing snatches you out of His hand. Nothing. Because He's interceding. He sat down. Don't miss that. Over and over. We're going to see it later in the book too. He sits down because He's finished His work. And I'm glad He did. But I don't want to take for granted that there may be somebody in this room who just like that preacher's son, you've prayed a prayer, you've walked an aisle, you've done whatever you've done. But it's always been up here. It's always been here. Never here. Don't let that be you. And if you know people like that, don't be afraid to hold fast your confession and help them point them to Jesus. Let's pray.